Good to see you all. I'm seeing some um, some jackets, some coats. It means it must be kind of cold over there. <laughs> it's very, uh, very odd to me. I keep on forgetting that that winter and, and fall, they are taking place in other parts of the country because of the, the weather in California is so different, or Southern California. It's been in the 70s lately. Eh, actually, we're in a bit of a cold spell, and it's going to actually get down into the 50s later this week, and uh, that'll be really strange. But anyways, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, back to Sunday School. Welcome back. We are progressing further in the book of Exodus today. People of Israel uh, have been protected by God, even though God has allowed them to be oppressed and enslaved. We saw last week that God has nonetheless protected them and even protected one among them, a special person of someone who would be used specially named Moses. Now, even though Israel continues to multiply, we're still looking for the actual deliverance. When will God bring about those other promises which he declared to the patriarchs? When will he bring them out of Egypt? When will he bring them to their land? We're going to see the beginning of the answer to that question today as we look at God's call to Moses. Lots to talk about today, so let's pray and we shall get right into it. Oh, holy God, you are high and lifted up, and yet you've, in a sense, come down and made yourself known to us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your love. I pray, God, that those at Calvary and those listening today would see who you are in a fresh way so that it, it moves them to trust you and not trust in themselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, that's where we were last time. When we saw Moses, when we last saw Moses, he was really beginning or trying to begin a liberation movement for the Hebrews in Egypt. Remember that Moses actually killed an Egyptian. He saw an Egyptian oppressing an Israelite and he took vengeance. He killed this Egyptian, hit him in the sand. Afterwards, Moses tried to arbitrate a dispute between two Israelites. But recall what the response was to Moses doing so. In Exodus 2.14, just glance back again at that verse, it says, or one of them, one of the Israelites said to him, who made you a prince or a judge over us? And this was not the reaction that Moses expected. In fact, and we made some allusion to this last week, listen to what Stephen says about Moses in Acts chapter 7. Acts 7 verses 23 to 25, Stephen says this about Moses' action. But when he, that's Moses, was approaching the age of 40 and entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Now, that's a very interesting commentary from Stephen. He emphasizes for us that Moses saw himself as the Hebrew deliverer. He was, Moses was, ready to free all the Israelites and lead them out of Egypt. And who better to do it? He had that special position in the household of Pharaoh itself. He was perfectly set up, it seemed, to lead Israel out of Egypt. But the words of the people of Israel to Moses were the direct opposite of what he expected. Who made you a ruler and judge of us? We don't accept your authority. This must have utterly shocked Moses. Thinking to himself, don't you understand that I'm your deliverer? I'm here to help you. But they want to know part of Moses' movement. Instead of all lining up behind Moses, as he might have expected, Moses found himself on the run. Rejected by his people, unable to return to Pharaoh's household because of the crime he committed. Now, it's true that God protected Moses even through this, even though Moses committed murder. But things couldn't have turned out worse or more different than Moses had expected. And in Moses' mind, he was just trying to do the right thing. He was just trying to please God. And have you ever face that kind of disappointment in your own life? Have you ever pursued something that you thought was God's will? 
your thought would be pleasing to God. It just seemed to perfectly line up with the circumstances presented to you, but it just did not turn out well. Maybe you finally decided to give the gospel to a certain family member, but the reaction was incredibly hostile, and you effectively ruined your relationship with that person. Or maybe you've been spending a lot of time preparing for a certain career or even a certain ministry before the Lord, but as you progress, suddenly it all falls through. You can't pursue that career anymore. Or maybe you've prayed and sought counsel, and you thought that a certain person would be the right one for you to pursue in marriage. But then when you actually did so, it was a complete fiasco. So you find yourself saying to yourself, God, why? What's the point of all that? I was trying to be obedient for you. I went out on a limb for your sake. And you left me high and dry. And as a result, you think to yourself, never again. I'm not going to take that risk again. It was too painful. I thought I was doing right, but God didn't back me up. And so there's a certain area of your life where you, you become more tentative. You're afraid or even unwilling to obey the Lord in that area. Have you ever felt this? At the end of Exodus 2, we're told that Moses settles down in the household of a Midianite named Jethro. He's also called Ruel. He has two names in the Bible. Jethro appears to have been a priest and a true follower of Yahweh. Jethro even gives one of his daughters, Zipporah, to Moses as a wife. Moses lives with Jethro and tends Jethro's flocks in the wilderness for 40 years. I remember Moses was about 40 when he tried to deliver Israel, and he fled. So now it's another 40 years that he's in the wilderness with Jethro. Doing this shepherding for 40 years, that's a long time. We might ask at the end of this 40 years, Moses is now 80, is Moses still that zealous deliverer that he was back when he was 40? Is he still passionate about seeing his brethren released from bondage? Or has he changed? Now we're going to find out as we look at Exodus 3 and 4 today, because it's now, after all these years, that God decides it's time to appear to Moses and it's time to call Moses on a special mission. Look at Exodus 3, verses 1 to 10. We're going to read this passage together, do some observations and interpretation. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 10. Let's look at that together. It says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord that is, the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why, this, why the bush is not burned up. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. 
This is the beginning of quite an amazing passage to start our analysis with basic observations. Notice where this takes place. Verse 1 says, this is at Horeb, mountain of God. What's Horeb? That's just another name for Mount Sinai, a mountain that's going to play a very prominent role in the book of Exodus and the rest of the Torah. Notice who appears to Moses at Horeb. Verse 2 says, the angel of Yahweh. Now, we've seen this angel before in Genesis. We've learned that in almost every case, the angel of Yahweh is God, yet distinct from God. He can represent God, he can speak for God, and yet he is also God. And we can see that the angel of Yahweh is God even here. Because notice, verse 2 says, the angel of Yahweh um, appears in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And then verse 4 says that it's God who calls to Moses from the midst of the bush. That's because the angel of Yahweh is God. And we've talked about before, this is likely the second person of the Trinity. This is God the Son, active in the Old Testament. Now notice why Moses turns aside to check out this bush. Verse 3, he notices it's not normal for a bush to be on fire and yet not consumed. But before Moses can approach too closely, notice God calls out to him. And he calls him twice by name in verse 4. In verse 5, God warns Moses that the place and the very ground of it is holy. So he says Moses must not approach too near, and he must remove the sandals of his feet, even where he is. Now notice how God identifies himself in verse 6. He says, I am God, the same God of the patriarchs of Israel. And at this announcement, Moses hides his face, probably by bowing his face to the ground. And notice the reason verse 6 gives us. It says, Moses was afraid to look at God. Now, how quickly the situation changed for Moses. He turned aside to look, but now Moses dare not look. But notice what God declares to Moses in verses 6 to 9. Five times in verse 6 and 9 specifically, God reveals that he knows about his people's suffering in Egypt. God has seen it. He's heard it. He's aware of it. And in verse 8, God reveals that now it's time for God himself to come down, as it were, and to deliver his people, bring them out of Egypt, and have them come to Canaan. Now this is great news. Deliverance for God's people, bondage, reception to this great land, this land of prosperity and luxury. That's what that phrase flowing with milk and honey is all about. But the big surprise comes in verse 10. God says, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You will bring my people up from Egypt. Wow, what an honor. What a privilege to be commissioned by God as his agent of deliverance. Isn't this what Moses had wanted all along? Now, how's Moses going to react to this call, this commission? Well, we'll see that a little bit later. But let's pause now and ask a few questions of interpretation. First, why was the ground around this bush and even the mountain itself considered holy? What do you think? That's right. It's about the presence of God. It's not like there's something special about this mountain or even this ground in particular. It's because God's presence is there. That's why it's called holy. And that's why it is holy. But what does it mean? So, so it's God's presence, and God is holy, therefore where he is is holy. But what does it mean for God to be holy? What would you say? Is this something we talk about, sing about? What does it mean that God's holy? At its most basic, it means that God is separate. But separate from what? Okay. Go ahead, say more. Right, okay. So actually, that's really helpful that you said both of those things. God's holiness means that he's absolutely righteous. So utterly separate from sin and evil and impurity. He is totally pure. But it's also right. To speak of God's holiness as meaning God's separation from 
everything. Now, holiness means basically set apart. And we often think of it strictly in terms of righteousness and purity, and that's true, but it's more than that. And I want to emphasize to you a certain theological truth that's been emphasized to me while I've been in seminary, and that is the idea that when we think about God's attributes, God's characteristics, God's perfections, we need to constantly be integrating them. Now, what do I mean by integrate? Well, it's very very easy for us to think of God's attributes as being very separate from one another. God has love, God has holiness, God has wrath. But we have to remember that God's essence is unified. Who God is, uh, sometimes theologians say, is, is simple. Though we have to conceptually separate these different attributes, they're actually all together and informing one another. So when this comes to, say, God's holiness and God's love, it's not like God has holiness over here and love over here. His holiness is informed by his love. His holiness is loving. And also, his love is holy. All of his attributes, his perfections, they inform, they connect to each other. So we have to integrate them in our own minds. God is all of his attributes at the same time. It's not like he's sometimes holy, sometimes wrathful, sometimes loving. No, they're all together. And this helps us appreciate what it means for God to be holy. Because God is not just holy in the sense that he's perfectly righteous, though he is that, but everything about God is set apart. His love is set apart. His justice is set apart. His mercy, his power, his sovereignty, his omniscience. God is completely unique. He is special. He is set apart in every one of his attributes and in who he is. This is why the Bible often talks about that there is no one like God. Not just because no one is righteous, but because no one is, is any of the quality that God is, to the extent that God is. And this is also why already alluded to it a little bit, you know the hymn, Holy, 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 if you actually look at the lyrics of that hymn, it's not really about God's purity and righteousness. It's actually about God's broad holiness, his set-apartness from everything. This is what we need to keep in mind whenever we think about God's holiness. God's purity and his separateness from sin, that's part of his broader holiness, that he's totally set apart, totally special. Now, in light of this, why was Moses afraid to look at God? He wanted to look, and then when he learned that it was God, he was afraid. Yeah, okay, he killed somebody, and that points to what in Moses? His sinfulness, his lack of holiness. Now, this certainly does get to God's purity, but seeing and realizing that he's talking with God, Moses realizes the great difference between him and God. And isn't this the problem, the fundamental problem of man as expressed in the scriptures? God is holy. He is perfectly righteous and glorious. He's not only pure, but everything he is is set apart and good and right. And we are not. He is the one who, every time someone sees his glory in the scriptures, brings them terror when they see it or hear about it. Like, think about Job, Job chapter 40 and 42, when God reveals himself to Job from the whirlwind. What's Job's reaction? I can't say anything, and I am just undone. I repent in dust and ashes. Or Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees a vision of the Lord, high and exalted in heaven. He says the same thing. I am undone. I am an unclean man. I have unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And we can say this 
for other passages too. Israel expresses this in Exodus chapter 20. When they hear the Ten Commandments, they say, don't let God talk to us anymore because if he does, we'll die. You intercede for us, Moses. Or John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he sees the vision of the glorious Christ and he says he fell down like a dead man. And Peter in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus does a miracle, Peter and his companions suddenly catch a huge load of fish. What's Peter's reaction? Ah, oh, thanks, Lord. That was really helpful. No, that's not what he says. He says, he got down on his knees and he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. There's one thing this passage is emphasizing to us. It is that God is holy. He is the set-apart one. He is the holy one who reigns in heaven. And yet, God also comes down to earth. God even speaks to Moses, who is, yes, unholy, unclean. God even reveals that he's intimately aware of what's going on with his people, and he's determined to deliver them even by sending Moses. So on the one hand, we see this transcendence of God. We see this utter set-apartness from God. And at the same time, what else do we see displayed from God in this passage? We see his compassion. You could say we see his love. And more broadly, we see his personableness, his intimate involvement with the world and with his people. Even though the world is filled with sinners, even though his own called out ones are yet unholy, yet God comes to be with them. How can this be? How can we have a transcendent God who is far away and yet a personal God who is near? You know, different philosophers and religious figures throughout the ages have theorized that it's impossible for God to be both of these things. In fact, if you look at man-made religions and philosophies, they usually posit God as one or the other. God is either transcendent, set apart, he has nothing to do with mankind because he's so holy, or God is just so close, he's so personable, he's not that great and powerful, and he's certainly not that holy. Like, consider Allah in Islam. He's a transcendent God, but not personable. Consider, though, the gods of Greco-Roman polytheism. Oh, they're very personable, but they're not holy and transcendent. It's because man can't, in his own thinking, conceive of a God who's both of these things. And yet, that's what this passage reveals. God is transcendent, but also personable. And actually, we see this throughout the scriptures. Consider the prayer, the model prayer that Jesus gives his disciples. How does it begin? Our Father, who is in heaven. Our Father, personable. Who is in heaven, transcendent and set apart. And this is another important thing for us to realize. Every time we pray to God, every time we think about God or talk about God, it's to have both of these qualities in mind. He is transcendent and yet he is near. One of the great questions throughout the Old Testament is how can God, this holy God, be near when his people are so sinful? And that's going to lead to the tabernacle system and a lot of the other things that we see in the Old Testament. And ultimately, it leads to the coming of Christ. How can God, a holy God, dwell with his people? Well, he's going to have to do something amazing to make his people holy. But anyways, we see these two, what seem contradictory qualities of God. They're not actually contradictory, though they're hard for our minds to conceive in this passage. Really, this whole thing is amazing. God has appeared in this form in the burning bush. He reveals that he knows about and cares about what's going on with Israel. He commissions Moses to do what Moses had originally intended and deliver the Hebrews. But how excited is Moses about this? Well, let's now look at the rest of the Burning Push account. We're going to look all the way from Exodus 3.11 to Exodus 4.17, and we're going to see that Moses gives five objections to being God's deliverer. Now, these objections, they sound like they're innocent questions at first. Just Moses being like, hey, I, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have to get some answers. 
But what's really going on in Moses' heart is revealed towards the end of this account. And I want you to see that. Jump to Exodus 4.13 for a second. Exodus 4.13, this is the, towards the conclusion of their conversation. Look what Moses says to God. He says, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And that's what you see in the New American Standard Translation. And that is what Moses is literally saying. And it doesn't sound so bad. God, you have this special commission. Send whomever you want to do it. But look at God's reaction to Moses' statement in the next verse. Verse 14, it says, Then the anger of Yahweh burned against Moses. Wait a second. Why does God get angry at Moses? It's because of what Moses is really saying in verse 13. The ESV translation captures the sense. If you have the ESV, it says, Moses says to God, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. See, that's what Moses was saying. He's like, God, send whomever you want, just not me, please. And Moses, wait, how can you say that? Well, we'll get to that. But I, I hope you see that this revelation at the end of their conversation shows that the whole time Moses really doesn't want to go. So his questions to God, they're not, they're not just interesting questions. They're objections. He doesn't want to be God's deliverer. So now let's actually look at each one of those and look at how God responds. Back to Exodus 3.11. There's a lot to observe in this section. It's a large text. But what I want us to focus on is just two parts. What is Moses' objection? He has five of them. And then what are God's assurances and provisions to Moses in light of those objections? Let's start with the first objection in response, verses 11 to 12 in chapter 3. Read those with me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. What's Moses' first objection? I'm not significant enough to go. Who am I? And notice God's response. He says, yes, you are, Moses. You're really special. You're super significant. Have some self-esteem. <laughs> That's not what God says to Moses. No, instead, God says, Moses, I will be with you. It's not about you, Moses. It's about me. God also gives Moses a sign. He says, Moses, I promise you, one day you will return to this mountain and you will be with the people of Israel and you will worship me here. Now, right in the beginning, this is a, a gracious response from God. Does this set Moses' heart right? Moses, God will be with you. Well, no, Moses still has some objections. And we'll see the next one a little bit longer in verses 13 to 22. Look at those verses. That Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. 
and after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Now notice Moses' second objection to God. He says, I won't know how to answer if they ask me to explain your name. And this may sound like a strange objection to us. Uh, did the people of Israel not know God's name? Do they not know who he is? Does Moses not know who he is? We've already seen in the previous chapters of the Torah, though, in Genesis, that some of the people, at least among Israel, do know who God is. And they even know God's name, Yahweh. I mean, Abraham and others are addressing God as Yahweh in the Bible. So what's this objection all about, this thing about God's name? Key in understanding this is to know that in those days, to ask for an ex explanation of a God's name was to ask for an explanation of that God's character and nature. It's to have that God explained. To give you an analogy, it's like if I were to claim to be an expert on art and, and paintings in particular. If I claim that I know and love paintings, if someone then asks me, oh, really? What's your favorite painting by Rembrandt and why? If I'm not able to give an explanation, well, then I can be pretty much dismissed as an art expert. You don't even know Rembrandt? You're not able to explain his best painting? You're not an art expert. Moses seems to have a similar fear when it comes to being God's, uh, God's messenger, God's agent. Moses is essentially saying, if I say I'm your special spokesman, your prophet, the people might ask me to explain all about you. And I'm not going to know what to say. Then they're just going to dismiss me as a fake. This is Moses' objection. And notice God's provision in reply. First, God says, Moses, I'll explain to you about my name. And he does. And this explanation has two parts. In verse 14, God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Now, this is an extremely important statement in the scriptures. So many other parts of the Old Testament and even the New Testament are going to interact with this verse. Because you see, this statement, I am who I am, it's connected with the name Yahweh, even that I've been using, uh, reading from this passage. Yahweh is equivalent to the Hebrew of he is. And it comes from this same verb being used here when God says, I am. God says, I am who I am, as people say, he is. There are many I am statements throughout the Bible. When God does, or when God prophesies that something's going to come to pass, he often says, when it comes to pass, you will know that I am. And even Jesus in the New Testament, he makes profound statements involving that same phrase. Before Abraham was born, I tell you, I am. To make that kind of claim, to be I am, is to be God. It connects with this verse. But what exactly does I am who I am declare about God? This is a very interesting statement from God. It clearly reveals his eternality and immutability. Eternality and immutability. That is, God has always been, always will be, and he also does not change. You see the way that God expresses himself is in the present tense. God has no beginning or ending. God always is. I am. God also does not change or develop through time. Who he is at one time is who he always is and will be. That comes out in this statement from God. But also, God is revealing and emphasizing his independence, his self-sufficiency. That is, Notice that God does not describe himself in relation to anything or anyone. That's because God does not need or rely on anything or anyone. He is perfectly sufficient, perfectly satisfied in himself. God has eternally existed before anything or every, everything else was created. And he was perfectly content 
in that situation. He is who he is. And there are other attributes that are implied by these things. Certainly God's power and God's holiness are also here. But more, most directly, his eternality, his immutability, his independence, his self-sufficiency, they come in this name, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Now, this is very transcendent, right? This emphasizes that God is set apart. Who is like this? But notice this is only the first part of God's name, as explained here. Notice the second part in verse 15. It says, also tell them, I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, what's this all about? God wants this special name, I am Yahweh, associated with his covenant relationship with the people of Israel, even the forefathers of Israel. It's true that I am who I am points to God's transcendence. But because it's also the name used to express covenant, it also expresses God's love and faithfulness, his nearness. God is not only transcendent, he is also personal. Yahweh is reference to God's self-sufficiency, but also his interaction with his people. And God wants both parts of this name emphasized by Moses to the people of Israel. In fact, he says, I want this name and explanation remembered forever. This is my memorial name forever. That's part of why it appears in our Bibles. This is a profound revelation of who God is. And every time you see the name Yahweh used in the Bible, there's some, there's some connotation of both these things. Yahweh is the name of covenant, simultaneously transcendent and near. So God has dealt with God's, or God has dealt with Moses' worry about explaining God's name pretty well. Here's Moses, here's the explanation. But notice the other assurances God gives here. Verse 18, he says, Moses, the people of Israel will listen to you. And verses 19 to 22, God also promises how Pharaoh will react. Pharaoh is not going to listen at first. That's going to allow me to use my miracles in Egypt. Eventually, you will come out of Egypt. And you will plunder Egypt when you do so. Well, is Moses satisfied now? What another great set of assurances and answers from God. But no, it's still not enough for Moses. He's got another objection. Let's go to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4 verses 1 to 9, a third objection from Moses expressed here. Notice what he says. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, Yahweh has not appeared to you. Yahweh said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Yahweh furthermore said to him, now, put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again. And when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, and you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water with which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. All right, what's Moses' third objection here? They're not going to believe me. Now, this is odd because God just said in previous verses that they will listen to you, Moses. Though he said Pharaoh won't listen to you at first. But notice how God responds. Look at these provisions. He gives Moses three miraculous signs to perform. Verses 2 to 5, he says, you will turn your staff into a snake and then back again. And verses 6 to 8, your hand will turn leprous and then turn back again. And then verse 9, you will pour out the water of the Nile onto the ground and that water will turn into blood on the ground. God says, if they won't believe the first sign, I've given you two more just in case. Now, these are obvious, miraculous signs. They show that Moses is really speaking for God. 
Are you good now, Moses? Not quite. There's a fourth objection, verses 10 to 12. Verse 10. Then Moses said to Yahweh, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Notice Moses' fourth objection. I'm not a skilled speaker. I'm not eloquent. Now, why is this an especially odd objection for Moses to give God? Yeah, on the one hand, you think, actually, you're probably the best speaker out of all the people of Israel. You were raised in Pharaoh's household. I'm sure you took some public speaking classes or something equivalent to that. You're a great speaker. Probably. But also, if we just look at the rest of the Torah, Moses is speaking a lot. Speaking in prayer, speaking to the people of Israel. He turns out to be a great speaker. But this is his rejection. God, I'm just not a good speaker. But notice God doesn't go the route of building up Moses here. Doesn't say, hey, Moses, remember your training, or hey, Moses, consider what you're going to do in the future. Let me tell you, it's going to be great. No. How does God assure Moses? He says, Moses, remember, I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer and creator of your mouth. I will teach you what to say. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the second part. I'm the creator of things like the mouth, but verse 12, I will be with you, mouth. And I will teach you what to say. Now that is quite a promise from God. Moses, God says that he will empower you to speak. He will give you the words to say. So you don't need to worry about it. By the way, does that sound like anything in the New Testament? The words of our Lord, right? When they drag you before the courts, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that hour. Now, surely Moses is assured now enough to obey God and go. But there's another final objection from Moses. And it's the one we saw earlier in verses 13 to 17. Let's look at that one now. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Moses. And he said, is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. If he sees you, he will be glad in his heart, and you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to, what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Now, we've already seen this last objection from Moses. It is essentially, I don't want to go. Please send someone else. Now, notice this is the first time in this whole exchange, the anger of Yahweh burns against Moses. And this is surprising. It's amazing that Yahweh didn't get angry before, even at the first objection, because Yahweh knew what was in Moses' heart. It's also amazing that Yahweh doesn't take up Moses on this suggestion. You know what, Moses? You're right. You're being a big pain. I'm tired of dealing with your lack of faith. I'm just going to destroy you and, and go with somebody else. But that's not what God does. In fact, notice that even here, God gives Moses a gracious provision. Though Yahweh insists, I'm still going to use you, Moses. But I agree, verses 14 to 17, that Aaron, your brother, will work with you. He will help you bring God, bring my message to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh. Moses will speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Israel and to Pharaoh. And this is where the conversation ends. More objections. The rest of chapter 4 describes how Moses travels with his wife and his son back to Egypt, how he meets Aaron along the way and tells him what happened, and then how both of them later declare God's message to the people of Israel. They also do the signs. 
And what's the response? Is it the same as what Moses experienced the first time? Do the people of Israel reject Moses as deliverer? Look at verse 31. Chapter 4, verse 31, it says, So the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh was concerned about the sons of Israel, and, what he had seen, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. What do you know? It happened exactly as Yahweh said it would. People believed. And that was a lot of different observations. But having seen now the entire burning bush narrative, let's step back and ask a few more interpretation questions. Number one, why doesn't Moses want to be God's deliverer? Moses, isn't this what you wanted? What do you think? Yeah, he was afraid. And why would he be afraid? Okay, so I think that's part of it. He knows what took place there before. Uh, they were seeking his life. It would be dangerous for him to go back, potentially. And so maybe he's afraid about that. But I think there's an even greater fear for Moses. Right. Right. So all of his objections keep on going back to self. I'm not this or I won't be able to do this. It's all about his own power and ability. And Moses would be particularly tempted to worry about his own ability because how well did his scheme work before? Right. He was ready to deliver Israel and it just didn't work. He thought he had everything lined up. I've got the training. I've got the know-how. I've got the ability. And they rejected Moses. It's very likely that Moses was fearing that the same thing would happen again. Oh, no. Last time I tried, it just didn't work. Don't send me back there. But as you point out, Mark, he's all focused about himself. Ultimately, what Moses is exhibiting is just lack of faith. I think it's because he keeps looking at himself. Even with all these great assurances and provisions from God, Moses is very slow to believe God, rely on God, and obey. Another question. What attributes of God are put on display in this exchange? Now, I already mentioned to you a number of them associated with the name Yahweh itself. But what else do we see in this passage? Yes, Dwayne. Yeah, right. God's patience and compassion are clearly put on display. Moses is being very, very much doubting, very much not relying on God. And yet God just keeps on speaking graciously to Moses, giving him provisions. None of them are necessary. God could just say, Moses, go. Just trust me, go. But God just keeps on being patient with Moses. What else do we see? Right, yeah. So again, we're seeing more that emphasis on God's personalness, his nearness, his intimate care and activity with his people. He's going to be directly with Moses. I will be with you. And that even goes more broadly to the people of Israel. God is exhibiting his love and faithfulness. I am concerned. I know about what's going on there, and I'm determined to do something about it. Seeing God's nearness, seeing God's love, even his intimate involvement with his people. But we also see God's power, right? God's sovereignty. He gives Moses these miracles to do. He tells Moses what's going to happen before it happens. That's because he's in control. He's the one who's going to bring this deliverance to pass. It will be through his power. So then, what's the main point of this passage? What's the main message of this burning bush narrative? Certainly there are a number of things that God is doing here, but I believe that the main point is to emphasize this, Yahweh, and not Moses, and not anyone else, 
is the true deliverer. Yahweh is the deliverer. I mean, is Moses the deliverer? Moses is tripping all over himself not to go and save Israel. Can any leader or deliverer look weaker at the start of some epic deliverance than Moses does here? Oh, God, please don't send me. I don't want to go. It's just going to go terribly. But the weakness of Moses only underscores the great sovereign strength of God. God will still save his people, and God will change Moses in the process. He will make Moses into a faithful leader, into a man of God full of faith. This is because, because God is the one with the power. God is the deliverer. Moses has to face his own utter weakness and learn to rely on God. And this would not just be true of Moses, but this would be true of the people of Israel as a whole. And of course, is it not the same for us? Brothers and sisters, it is only when we learn to rely on God by faith in our weakness that we can ever find the strength, the courage, or the hope to do what he's called us to do. And doesn't Paul say the same thing in the New Testament? When Paul is dealing with that painful thorn in the flesh that God refuses to remove, what does God say to Paul? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Brothers and sisters, you've got to come to the end of yourselves. You've got to realize that, in, assess, in essence, you're just like Moses. God, I don't have the ability. I don't have the power to make things happen. Not temporally, or in relation to physical things, and not spiritually. I can't give myself a job. I can't make someone become saved. I can't even, on my own, overcome this sinful temptation. God, I need your help. God, I need your power. You must face and own your own weakness. You must learn, as Moses eventually does, to rely on God. And along with this, you have, to, you have to learn that you can't go outside of God's will to accomplish God's purpose. You can't make something happen You say, well, God said you have to do it this way, but I'm going to bring it about my own way. Now, sometimes God allows that to bring about what you're, what you're looking for, but sometimes he doesn't. And that's what happened with Moses. I'm going to kill this Egyptian. Egyptian and lead a revolt. Didn't work, Moses. Because the power is not really in you, Moses. And brothers and sisters, the power is not really in us. Isn't this what Jesus says also in Matthew 6 when he talks about worrying? He says, who of you by worrying can add one cubit to his life? You can't even make one hair of your head turn white or black. The power is in God. The power is not in you. Yes, he uses you as means, but you're not the one with the power. Therefore, what are you to do? You are to rely on God. You are to trust God. You are to indeed go out on a limb in faith for God, not through sin, but through obedience, through trusting God. This may be a painful realization for you to realize, but it is a critical one. And really, it's a liberating one. God is the only true deliverer, yet he has chosen to work through weak links like us. We don't have the strength or wisdom on our own. But if God is with us, and he has promised that he is, right? Jesus says, I am with you until the end of the age. If God is with us, then what have we need to fear? Psalm 18 says, if God is with us, we can beat back a whole troop of soldiers. We can leap over a wall. Not literally, but figuratively. Do you believe this? Do you believe your God is great enough for this? That you can trust him? That he will use even you? I think a lot of us want to say, oh, no, God could never use me. I'm so nothing. I'm... Now, God's not going to say, no, no, you're really great. That's why I'm going to use you. No, God says, I'm really great. And that's why I'm going to use you. Do you see this? And as part of this, do you see that God is both transcendent and personal? He is intimately involved in your life. He's determined to use you. But he does it for his glory and by his power because he's the transcendent God. Do you see this? 
And I'm already pointing you by these interpretation conclusions to application. We need to see this, brothers and sisters. We need to see our weakness and God's strength. That is to be the basis of our obedience and service. But are we seeing that? And to help you think through this a little bit more, let me give you a few more application questions as we close. Get you thinking about how these things are true or have been true in your life. Number one, what bad experiences in your life have you used to doubt God and disobey his word? Moses saw his failure in the past. I think that was what was motivating to say, no, God, you can never use me. What in your life has been like that for you? Number two, how often do you think about, study, and talk about the attributes of God? Do you ever consider his attributes? Do you ever meditate on them? Do you ever learn more about them? I tell you, one of the greatest blessings of being in seminary was taking the theology classes, just learning more about who God is. It's so encouraging. Do you ever do that? Number three, how is your lack of understanding or lack of appreciation for who God is tied to your lack of faith? Because isn't this exactly what we keep seeing in the narrative? God, I can't do it. Moses, remember who I am. God, but they won't believe. Moses, look what I've provided. How has your lack of understanding or appreciation led to your lack of faith? And now getting really specific here. Number four, when thinking about giving the gospel to others, which let's admit, for many of us, this is a fearful thing. This is the thing that causes us anxiety. When thinking about giving the gospel to others, do you think in terms of your own inability or of God's power and promises? Oh, God, they'll never listen. They'll never believe. God, I won't know what to say. God, they'll just get mad. God, they'll just reject me. Is that what your thoughts are constantly going to? Or instead, are you saying, God, I don't have any power, but you do. And you promised that your sheep are going to hear your voice. And they're going to come. They're going to repent and believe. You'll use even me. You've given me, along with the Apostle Paul, the ministry of reconciliation. You will use me even to save and to sanctify others. Do you believe that? Or are you still stuck with Moses? Oh, no, God will never use me. God uses weaklings like us. That's how he gives himself glory. Where do your thoughts go when it comes to giving the gospel to others? Questions or comments about what you've heard today? I hope you'll take the time to think through these questions. I hope you will meditate more on the profound revelation of God that we've seen in this passage. You know, in many ways, this passage is not really about Moses. It's about God. It's just God revealing who he is in an amazing way. I, I pray that you will continue to meditate on this even today and throughout the week. But that's all for this week. If you have other questions or comments, please email me. Clearly, the stage is now set for a showdown between God and Pharaoh. God has already said that Pharaoh will be stubborn. He's not going to let the people of Israel go. What's going to happen? Next time, we'll see. God sends great and mighty plagues on Egypt. I look forward to talking about that with you. But let's close in prayer. Oh, our Lord God, we are very many times like Moses. All we are thinking about, God, is how we could never do it. The things you called us to, we could never achieve. Because, God, we're weak. Because we don't have the power. We don't have the wisdom. And yet, God, in a way, that's true. On our own, we cannot do anything good. We cannot fulfill any of your calling. The thing is, Lord, if we're in Christ, if we're in your son, we're not alone. It's not about our power. It's about your power. Lord, forgive us for how, how doubtful we have been, how we don't trust you. We don't rely on you. We just keep thinking according to 
fleshly and worldly thinking, all in terms of our own power and ability instead of your power, God. It's amazing. It's amazing that you would use even us to accomplish such great and mighty works. Lord, that you will save people even through the words of our mouths. That you will sanctify people by our instruction, by our confrontation, by our encouragement. But it's all about you, God. It's all about your power and your glory. So glorify yourself in our lives. Continue, God, by your spirit to cause us to believe you, to progress in sanctification. So we might prove useful to you. And we might see more people saved and come into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish that for the people at Calvary today and anyone listening. In Jesus' name, amen.